Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are going to look at the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer as we continue our series, The Catechized Life. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, as we go ahead and get into the fifth petition here, we probably are going to just cover this one petition in today's episode. I know we've been taking, you know, when we went through the commandments, a couple commandments at a time and a couple petitions at a time as we've gone through the Lord's Prayer here and so forth. But as you mentioned to me just before we started the show here, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to forgiveness. It's really the center of our faith, the forgiveness that is won for us by Christ and then how we live in forgiveness with one another and really, I think, brings together what you've set up for us in that separation syndrome. So there's a lot to get into here. And so with that kind of set up, let's go ahead. I'm going to read the fifth petition from Luther's Small Catechism for us and then just turn it over to you for our instruction and catechesis on that here today. So this is the fifth petition from Luther's Small Catechism. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayers because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. But we ask that he would give them all to us by grace, for we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. All right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and take us away here with our catechesis on the fifth petition. Sean, you said it so well when you said that this is sort of the central theme of the Christian faith, and I really think that in many ways that's how the Christian should also understand its place within the Lord's Prayer itself, that it is really the central petition that hinges everything together, that sort of holds everything together. You know, when you when you buy uh, trinkets at stores and, and uh, different things having to do with, you know, Christian artwork and different uh, little knickknacks having to do with the Lord's Prayer, so often the phrase, give us this day our daily bread, is highlighted as if that is the main petition. And we've talked before, uh, maybe even in the previous episode, about how it seems that that petition, give us this day our daily bread, so much seems like the main petition for people because of our society and our context and just our human nature of just taking comfort in things 
and in materials and in wealth and in temporal care and all of those different things by which we would know God is giving us our daily bread. And so when you, you know, when you buy those gifts at the uh, Christian bookstore or wherever you might buy these trinkets on the Lord's Prayer, you often will see that petition highlighted as being the center of the Lord's Prayer. I think the center of the Lord's Prayer is really this petition, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I really think that Luther's meaning shows us that this is the center and the heart of the Lord's Prayer, just as it is the center and heart of the Christian faith. When we talk about the Christian faith, certainly that works its way all the way back to the Ten Commandments. You brought up in your opening comments there, even all the way back to the separation syndrome, how all of this sort of comes together now in the Lord's Prayer. And when you think of the difference between the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, what the Ten Commandments highlighted in the holiness of God's law, and all of that, as we've talked about now in previous episodes, has sort of been highlighted by the first half of the Lord's Prayer, as each of the first lines of the Lord's Prayer teams up really well with the different lines of the Ten Commandments. And as all of that has been highlighted in the Lord's Prayer, and as Jesus has taught us to, again, sort of gauge daily life by whether or not God's will has been carried out in daily life, and he has taught us to pray so that we might be refocused in our will by whether or not God's holy will is being done. So what the Ten Commandments have highlighted in the holiness of all of that is now, in a sense, calmed in the Lord's Prayer in this line, which the Ten Commandments never include. If you think about that, there's the striking difference between the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, is that the Ten Commandments do speak of God's holy will. They do hint at the reality that God will lead us out of temptation and deliver us from evil as we devote our will, if you will, to his will. So they do hint at all of that, just as the final petitions of the Lord's Prayer sort of hint at that sanctified life, that life of God's people and God's children desiring to live according to his will. Both Ten Commandments and Lord's Prayer hint at that. The one thing that the Ten Commandments never hint at is the forgiveness of sins. But the Lord's Prayer calms all of that by Jesus teaching us to see daily life as it's supposed to be seen, according to God's holy will, then that, in a sense, strikes terror in the heart, and yet Jesus calms us by saying, you can, with a very free conscience, you can pray for the forgiveness of sins. You can know with certainty that you have a loving Father in heaven, as he taught us in that opening line of the Lord's Prayer, a loving Father in heaven, who not only desires to forgive all your sins, but promises to forgive your sins through his holy word and sacrament. This too is part of his good and gracious and holy will. And so I really think that the Christian can take a lot of comfort in understanding this petition to be the very heart and center of the Lord's Prayer. Here in this line, the gospel shines brightly. And apart from this line, I would ask, where do we see the gospel? Where do we see the gospel shine brightly? In one sense, I suppose you could be argued that in the very narrowest sense of the term gospel, it doesn't shine brightly apart from this line. Because of this line, we can go back and talk about God's will being done. Uh, We can talk about his kingdom coming, and we can know that those are good, gracious things. 
but that's because we can have a free and clear conscience before God because of the forgiveness of sins. Apart from the forgiveness of sins, God's kingdom coming might be a very threatening and foreboding idea, just as we hear, for example, people worry about the second coming, the last day, meeting their maker. Well, why are they afraid of that? They're afraid of that because their conscience is burdened because they don't know the freedom of the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. So whether or not someone wants to argue that this is the main line of the Lord's Prayer or the pinnacle line of the Lord's Prayer, we can't certainly overstate how central this petition is to the Lord's Prayer and really to all prayer, because we can only come before God if we have a clear conscience, and we can only have a clear conscience if we have the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus teaches us to pray for forgiveness for a few reasons. First, because it is central to our ability to petition God with a clear conscience. Again, think of Luther's explanation here when he says that we pray that God would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. So notice the burdened conscience might say, I have concerns about my repentance or my quality of repentance or about my standing before God because of sin, and therefore I'm not sure that God is going to hear my prayer regarding the goodness of his holy will, regarding my daily bread needs. I don't I can't be sure about that, about God, whether God will even listen to that because of my sin. And so as Luther's explanation says, the Christian can say that with a very free and clear conscience, we ask, O oh God, that you would not deny our prayer because of our sin, but rather for Christ's sake, that you would hear us openly and we can come before you with a free and clear conscience regarding that. The second reason that Jesus teaches us to pray for forgiveness is because the forgiveness of sins is promised to us. Another wonderful comfort to always keep in mind when praying this petition, that we ought to remember that God doesn't tell us to pray for things he doesn't promise. And if that's true, and if that's the foundational comfort of the command behind prayer, right? When, when we talked about prayer at the very beginning of this discussion on the Lord's Prayer and looking at some of those introductory comments in the large catechism, Luther says the first reason that we should pray is because God commands it. And yet God doesn't command things that he knows to be harmful for us. He commands things that he knows to be beneficial for us, specifically because they have everything to do with his good and holy will, which he carries out for our benefit. And so when he commands us to pray, forgive us our trespasses, it's because he has promised to give us this through Christ Jesus. And that's the second reason that Jesus teaches us to pray for forgiveness, because we can be certain, the Christian can be certain, the, the baptized child of God can be certain that forgiveness of sins is his because of his status as one who is safe in Christ Jesus. And so just as Jesus teaches us to pray for daily bread specifically because he promises to provide it, so also he teaches us to pray for forgiveness of sins specifically because he promises to provide it. Uh, in fact, he can only teach us to pray for daily bread because he knows he is first and continually keeping us united to him through that forgiveness of sins. Think of that passage that we used for the separation syndrome, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, where it says, your sins have separated you from your God. And I tend to leave off with a quotation there just to focus on that idea of sin separating you, the separation syndrome. 
But the verse actually goes on, and it says, Your sins have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Notice that? If we have to worry about sin getting in the way, then we can't even ask for daily bread. We can't ask for anything because God will not give it because there is no hearing of it. Now, he might give it to us in the same way that he gives to the wicked, as we talked about daily bread coming for all people, even the wicked, because God is generous toward his fallen creation. But what good is any of that if there is no forgiveness of sins? So this is such an important connection that Christ teaches our great need, our one great need, is the forgiveness of sins. Where we have that, and thus where we have unity with God, everything follows. And we hear that multiple places in the Gospels, where you know Christ talks about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added unto you. We hear it again in John chapter 6, when Jesus says something very similar uh, regarding those who are chasing after bread. And he says, that's really not your main concern. Your main concern are the things of heaven. Your main concern is the bread who comes down from heaven. And all of these daily, temporal, bodily issues all depend upon and flow from that reality of being able to say, I know that I am forgiven before God because of Christ, and therefore I can have a very joyful and free and clear conscience before God. And no matter what I'm asking him, I know that he will do what is good and best for me, specifically because Christ has paid for my life. So as Luther's explanation hints at this great reality, he says, we are neither worthy of the things, notice the daily bread stuff for which we pray. So we are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them, right? You can't, you can't attain to this by what you supposedly deserve in all of this, because we deserve nothing which is why we need Christ to die on the cross and to freely apply the forgiveness of sins to us, to freely apply his righteousness, his credited righteousness to us by pouring out the salvation of the cross to us individually in the forgiveness of sins. And so we don't deserve any of this, but we ask that he would give them all to us by grace. There's that phrase there right in the explanation. The very heart and center and definition of what grace is is the forgiveness of sins. And where we have the forgiveness of sins, then all of God's other gracious disposition toward us flows freely from that. Where we do not have the forgiveness of sins, then all of that is withheld as well. Grace and God's good favor in daily bread things, it only flows from God's good favor in, to make up a phrase here, the stuff of heaven. So if I want the stuff of earth, that's a secondary thing because what matters most is the stuff of heaven, the forgiveness of sins. Where we have the forgiveness of sins, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these other things can and will be added as God knows that we have need. And so having been shown again the Ten Commandments, are standing before them, we are right to pray. Jesus is right to teach us to pray for forgiveness before and in the presence of the Ten Commandments, but also forgiveness as the foundation for all of our relationship with God and our confidence in his provision in all other things. Now, we might say that as, as we discussed last episode, we tend to not need teaching on give us this day our daily bread because it's everyone's favorite petition and the one that is most before our eyes. And if that's true, then perhaps it could be argued that we need 
teaching on forgive us our trespasses, sometimes because it's the petition we either most take for granted or conversely, that we most disbelieve. On the one hand, there are those that think forgiveness can only be gained by merit, labor, effort, good works. We certainly know of all those false teachings in our land, sadly, that sometimes hijack the Christian conscience uh, and make the Christian wonder whether or not he's actually forgiven before God in heaven because he's being taught to make a decision for Jesus or to prove his salvation by good works. And so that merely asking for forgiveness seems like a very futile prayer to them. Why would I simply ask for forgiveness when I know I've got to do my good works, I've got to make my decision? Uh, Why would God just freely give me the forgiveness of sins? And so it almost brings a doubt and a despair to thinking that this petition is worth anything because they've been taught for so long that forgiveness doesn't come freely. Forgiveness doesn't come because God is good and gracious. Forgiveness comes because you show God that you are faithful, that you show God you are worth saving. You show God that you deserve the forgiveness of sins. Uh, That's false doctrine through and through. And it also, you know, as false doctrine always does, it leads people to despair and to great fear. On the other hand, there are those, and let's be honest, this might especially be true among us Lutherans sometimes, who have so rightly, we have so rightly and richly been pointed to the certainty of forgiveness in Christ crucified. And yet, in our sin, we begin to take it for granted as if it's just a given and we just sort of yawn at it or fail to cherish what Christ has done for us, that Christ would give us hope by even including this in the prayer he has taught us. We should never take that for granted. We should never say, oh, yeah, 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 we we know about the forgiveness of sins, now let's go on to other stuff. But rather, we should, as Christ says in the Gospels, seek first the kingdom of God, cherish that, cherish that at all times. There is nothing greater than the forgiveness of sins, and every gift that comes from above flows freely from that, joyfully from that. Uh, it, It never says in the scriptures that all the angels rejoice over God giving you daily bread, but it does say that all the angels rejoice over the sinner who repents because they know that the free forgiveness of sins is coming. And the free forgiveness of sins now benefits that penitent individual. So we do well to consider those passages of Scripture, and especially of the Psalms. I love, I love some of the passages of the Psalms that show that the Christian ought to take very seriously the forgiveness of sins. But if we're going to take very seriously the forgiveness of sins, that means we have to take very seriously the weight of sin. This is sort of why we started the whole discussion weeks back with the separation syndrome because we have to understand just how deep sin runs in order for us to know just how deep and gracious is God's forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And so to start with some of those same passages that can be used to talk about the separation syndrome or to talk about original sin and things that show just how weighty sin is, think of that passage from the 51st Psalm. Uh, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But then we also ought to consider those psalms that show 
the Christian ought take very seriously the gift of forgiveness. So as we hear from the Psalms and from plenty of other passages in scriptures, just how thoroughly we ought understand the weight of sin, now we ought equally take seriously the weight of the forgiveness of sins and how we ought rejoice in that gift of forgiveness. Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He is blessed, right? He, he is a blessed individual. If you're going to talk about that word blessing as if, hey, this is the best thing God could give you is this blessing, then what better thing to talk about is the reality that God blesses us with the forgiveness of sins. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Luther speaks well to this in the large catechism. One of the quotes included in our explanation to the small catechism that you can find in the back of the catechism with all of those passages and extra comments back in those pages, we quote Luther's large catechism where he says, if God does not forgive without stopping, we are, we are lost. For where the heart is not in a right relationship with God or cannot take such confidence, it will not dare to pray anymore. Such a confident and joyful heart can spring from nothing else than the certain knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. Now, this knowledge of the forgiveness of sins, this knowledge leads people then to ask, well, then, why do I need word in the sacraments if I can just pray for forgiveness? That's an interesting question, because sometimes we sort of set up this mindset among ourselves of saying, you know, I just want the forgiveness of sins in the simplest, quickest, easiest, most efficient way possible. And if God says in the Lord's Prayer, I'm forgiven, then man, I don't, I, why even bother going to church anymore if I can just pray for forgiveness? But is the knowledge of forgiveness in prayer the same as the bestowal of forgiveness in word and sacrament. Keep in mind, as we've said before, prayer is not a sacrament. Interestingly, though, Luther seems to compare it as a quote-unquote sign in the same way the sacraments he calls, quote, outward signs and seals that carry the gem and the jewel that is the forgiveness of sins. So in the, in the last paragraph of the discussion of this petition in the large catechism, Luther has this quote. He says, and it's, and it's a little bit of an extended quote here. He says, quote, this sign is therefore attached to this petition. When we pray, we remember the promise and think, dear father, for this reason, I come and pray for you to forgive me because you have promised and attached the seal to this prayer that I should be as sure about it as though I had absolution pronounced by you yourself. For baptism and the Lord's Prayer, appointed as outward signs, work as seals. In the same way also, this sign can serve to confirm our consciences and cause them to rejoice. It is especially given for this purpose, so that we may use and practice forgiveness every hour as a thing that we have with us at all times. So it's important to take note of some of the little nuances within this explanation so that we do properly see the relationship between the Lord's Prayer carrying to us the assurance of the forgiveness of sins versus, if you want to use that word, versus word and sacrament as sign and seal. Is there a difference? Is there a distinction that we should understand between these? So take note first that Luther uses the same words, sign, seal, conscience, he uses that regarding the Lord's Prayer as he does regarding the sacraments. He even uses the phrase, 
in the same way also. And so we can take such great comfort that God's forgiveness is so ever-presently carrying us throughout life. And so by all means, God is always forgiving so that we can always have in this prayer the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. But I would argue there is a slight distinction here. And maybe just as we run into the break here, maybe we ought to save the distinction for after the break. But first of all, every hearer should take great comfort in what Luther has just pointed out and just said, that we can carry with us in the Lord's Prayer that great assurance and that clear conscience. It is a sign in that regard and a seal in that regard that we can take with us a clear conscience and great assurance that God is a forgiving God, and that because our life is found in Christ Jesus as baptized children of God, Therefore, we have a God who is always forgiving, and he's not holding the clipboard and checking off whether or not, you know, we've behaved just correctly or whatever, but he's always gracious and merciful toward his adopted children. And so we can have a very clear conscience with the petition of this prayer. And yet, maybe after the break, I might argue that there is a slight difference between the joy of the assurance of the forgiveness of sins in the Lord's Prayer and the joy of the forgiveness of sins in the word and the sacrament that we receive. We will absolutely take that up after the break there. Before we get to break, though, you talk a little bit about the knowledge of forgiveness of sins here. And you've talked previously, especially when we began the series, and then again in the first article of the Creed, we've talked a little bit about the difference between the revealed knowledge of God and the natural knowledge of God. And we use that terminology when we teach about our faith and, and especially about the creed and the creation of the world and things like that. Would you like to say just a few words about that? I think that would tie in here with what we're talking about that, you know, when it comes to the uh, daily bread things that come even to the wicked and so forth, that's just kind of a, a natural knowledge, right? We receive those things that there's clearly some provision of that going on in the world. And we would talk, you know, just broadly that that points to the fact that there is a creator and sustainer of the world, right? That's a natural knowledge. But when it comes to the forgiveness of sins, we only have that in this revealed knowledge. And that's where it is so key that it does come in here in the Lord's Prayer that we can be sure of this forgiveness of sins. Do you have just with a couple minutes here, any comments on that? Sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. That natural knowledge is simply, to say it that way, I guess, is simply that there is a God out there, that we know that there's a God, and, and all of the earth confesses that, the creation confesses that, the sky proclaims his handiwork, the mountains, the seas, all things thereof proclaim through natural revelation that there is a God out there, and that we can know that that God is a God of good order. The special revelation, though, is a revelation of God's grace, of God's compassion and forgiveness, which can only be found in Christ Jesus. And therefore, to have this petition in this prayer, again, is a prayer for the baptized. It's a prayer not for the whole world by creation, it's, but rather for the prayer for those who can rightly say, our Father, who art in heaven, uh, as John says in his epistle, beloved, we are God's children now. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Well, notice that he's in a sense speaking of the special revelation there, that yes, the world generally and generically knows there's a God, but the world does not know him through the revelation he has given in Christ Jesus, and therefore the world cannot know 
us and the things for which we pray, those divine heavenly realities that the Christian has that opportunity and that joy to be able to pray for with certain confidence, including the forgiveness of sins, which is ours in Christ Jesus, which makes us one with God in Christ Jesus, and which gives us a very clear conscience and open access to the Father, the one who loves us, and not just the God who is the Almighty, who we stand at a distance from in fear and cower toward, but rather that we can come before him with all boldness and confidence as dear children ask their dear Father, precisely because of the special revelation of the Word and the sacraments and and Christ working through these things to give us the forgiveness and then teaching us that we as Christians can be assured of it here in the Lord's Prayer. And I think that really is a key distinction then too, and that distinction that we're going to make on the other side of the break here too is, as you said, we come in all boldness and confidence as dear children to our Father. Well, we only have that through the forgiveness of sins, which we receive in the sacrament of baptism, right? And so that's how we approach our Heavenly Father with this boldness and confidence, knowing that we are forgiven, we are His dear children. And so on the other side of the break, we'll take up this distinction then between the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins as we pray here and the reception of the forgiveness of sins through the means of grace, through the sacraments. So that's our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFU. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the Word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our series, The Catechized Life, and today looking at the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. And just before the break, Pastor Bestel, our catechist for this series, had set up for us that there is a distinction to be made between the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins as we pray in this fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer and the reception of the forgiveness of sins as we would receive in the church and through the sacraments. And that's an important distinction that we want to make here. So especially as we continue forward in the catechism, we will be getting into the sacraments next. And so uh, as this is the kind of hinge petition as Pastor Bestel has set up there for us and the center of our faith and is going to have a right understanding for us as we push forward here. Go ahead and make that distinction for us here then, Pastor Bestel. Sure. So we've talked about before the break this knowledge of forgiveness and Luther's comment, his own commentary here in the large catechism shows what he means in the explanation in the small catechism. Uh, so we've, we noted before the break that he used all the same words, sign, seal, conscience, using phrases like in the same way also. But now notice what Luther says when he says, quote, it is not as though he did not forgive sin without and even before our prayer. He has given us the gospel. Notice that distinction that Luther makes there, that he says it's the gospel where we get the forgiveness of sins. And remember, when we started this discussion on the Lord's Prayer, we started with a general discussion about what is prayer. Is prayer sacramental or is prayer sacrificial? 
prayer is originates in a sense with man and we offer up our sacrifices of petitions thanksgivings that type of a thing so prayer is sacrificial the gospel is sacramental how does god actually give it to us and so luther in his own commentary says it's not as if we don't have the forgiveness of sins without our prayer we already have it in the gospel there is where you actually find forgiveness of sins Elsewhere, Luther says, if I want the forgiveness of sins, I do not run to the cross because Christ is no longer there. I don't run to the empty tomb because Christ isn't there either. If I want the forgiveness of sins, I run to the word and to the sacraments because there is where Christ can be found. Notice Luther doesn't say, I run to prayer to find the forgiveness of sins. Rather, as he goes on to discuss here, I run to prayer to be comforted and assured of forgiveness of sins that I receive in the gospel so that when I can't immediately at that moment be at the altar of God receiving his gifts, be at the pulpit of God hearing of his gifts, be at the font being reminded of my baptism that there I became a child of God, when I can't be there, nevertheless, I can have the full assurance, confidence, certainty, joy that I have not stepped out of God's love for me as his baptized child just because of imperfect living, but rather the penitent can always know that he has a loving God. And so Luther continues on, after making this interesting delineation between the gospel and its means of grace versus prayer, and he says, again, just to back up here, it is not as though he did not forgive sin without and even before our prayer. He has given us the gospel in which is pure forgiveness before we prayed or ever thought about it. But the purpose of this prayer is that we may recognize and receive such forgiveness. Okay, now people might be holding on to that word receive uh, as if here, right here and now, I am somehow in some immediate way receiving the forgiveness. But compare this very phrase in Luther's comment to the fourth petition meaning. When in Luther's words regarding daily bread, he says, God gives daily bread even without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that he would lead us to realize this and receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. Same exact words there, that we may recognize and receive such forgiveness versus we may realize and receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. Now, no one would argue that we are receiving our daily bread in the prayer or because of the prayer, as if I could pray, Lord, give me my daily bread, and immediately my stomach would be full because he had just fed me my dinner just through the prayer. But rather we pray for it, and then lo and behold, God is gracious to us, and there sits the dinner before us, and we consume the dinner, and then, then we have our fill as we need it. Or he gives us wife and children through temporal means, but we don't pray for a wife and then all of a sudden, because of the prayer, almost like some magic genie bottle, a wife pops into existence. That's not how it works. And in the same way, then, with the forgiveness of sins, in the prayer, Christ teaches us to realize God's forgiving work toward us and therefore to receive it with thanksgiving in the same way that we do with daily bread. And there's that relationship then. So we are not being bestowed the forgiveness of sins in the Lord's Prayer in a manner as if ungrateful hearts can say, I no longer have need of word and sacrament. But we are being led to realize that God is always forgiving, and thus the penitent can always have a clear conscience to stand before God in prayer without having to worry that somehow our sins will cause God to not hear our prayer. Uh, Luther also goes on to say, Quote, it is always necessary that we run here and receive consolation to comfort the conscience. 
Now notice this word choice that we receive consolation uh, in that quote that I read before the break. He talked about the idea that the sign of prayer, quote, can serve to confirm our consciences and cause them to rejoice. Notice that a confirmed conscience, a rejoicing conscience, a clear conscience, these are all the subjective realities that are based on the firm foundation of the objective truth of forgiveness. So what Luther says regarding prayer is here is where our conscience is subjectively comforted by the objective truth that we are God's children who regularly receive forgiveness of sins as Christ has promised in word and sacrament. But that does not mean that the Christian should therefore say, if I can be assured of it in prayer, therefore I don't need to actually benefit and receive it as God has designed in word and sacrament. So Luther goes on here and he says, we pray that he would deal graciously with us and forgive as he has promised. Well, how has he, how has he promised to do it? Through word and sacrament as he has promised, and so grant us a joyful and confident conscience to stand before him in prayer, for where the heart is not in a right relationship with God, think of the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments are all about you are not in a right relationship with God because he is holy, you are unholy. And so those Ten Commandments, in a sense, need to be, you know, our heart needs to be calm that we can objectively stand before God and his holy Ten Commandments because of Christ. But Luther says, where the heart is not in a right relationship with God or cannot take such confidence, this petition's calming and reassuring of us of our standing before God, even with the Ten Commandments in plain view, none of that happens. The heart will not dare to pray anymore, to pray not just for forgiveness, but to pray for anything. Why would I appeal to God if I'm afraid of him? If I'm afraid that he's going to strike me down because of my sin, I won't appeal to him for daily bread. I won't appeal to him regarding his holy will because I know that I'm not upholding it well. I won't pray to him regarding his kingdom coming because why would I want his kingdom to come and strike me down? But with the free, clear conscience that is mine, I can pray for all of these things. Luther concludes this quote here by saying, such a confident and joyful heart can spring from nothing else than the certain knowledge of the forgiveness of sin. And again, notice how he talks about the certain knowledge of it, not that it's being given right there and then, but that we can live our daily life in joy of the forgiveness of sins that we receive through word and sacraments at those appointed times that God freely gives. Now, the the individual might say, well, wait a minute here. Does that mean if I am totally burdened in conscience on Monday, I have to wait until next Sunday to receive the forgiveness of sins, and all I can do is try to reassure myself in prayer before then? No, that's why we have private absolution. If the heart is so burdened, if the conscience is so burdened before Sunday, then come run to your pastor and ask him to hear your confession that he might proclaim God's forgiveness, just as the Catechism teaches us to do. So in short, just as with daily bread, so also with this petition, God forgives us before and apart from our prayer, but we pray in this petition that he lead us to realize this and receive our forgiveness with thanksgiving, which leads us to then share that same forgiveness with others. So notice now how the vertical relationship brings us to the horizontal relationship and the ability, in a sense, to love my neighbor for my neighbor's sake and to forgive my neighbor freely and joyfully because I know 
by experience what it means to be a beneficiary of the forgiveness of sins. And so we've got this second clause now, as we forgive those who trespass against us. That relationship, that horizontal relationship, reminds us that the Ten Commandments are not just about our relationship with the Holy God, but they're also about our horizontal relationship with our neighbor. So Jesus summarizes the commandments in the same way that this petition is laid out. He appeals to the Holy God and then to the neighbor regarding the relationship with the Holy God. We pray, forgive us. There's no forgiveness needed if God is not holy, right? So here's sort of the first table of the law. But then regarding the relationship with our neighbor, we pray that we would forgive our neighbor, or as Jesus summarizes it, that we would love our neighbor so that we love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. There's how Jesus summarizes it, or as he teaches us to pray, God forgive us, vertical relationship, us and God, as we forgive those who trespass against us, there's the horizontal relationship. And so what he's doing here in this line and in this secondary clause of the petition is echoing for us what he has summarized or how he has summarized the Ten Commandments but now he is calming our conscience regarding it and saying, this holy will of mine is one that is carried out in the forgiveness of sins, God's forgiveness of you, and therefore your forgiveness of one another. Remember the, uh, the rich young man and his concern was interestingly not the first table of the law, but when these commandments were summarized for him, immediately he jumped to the question of, well, who is my neighbor? And so this is a, an important secondary clause. Christ doesn't just rebuke him and say, how dare you jump past the first table of the law? But he takes up that discussion, who is my neighbor? And that leads us into the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you also hear in other places in the scriptures, for example, in John's epistles, where he says, one cannot say that he loves God while hating his brother. That person is a liar. So consider again that the parable of the wicked steward or the wicked servant who wouldn't forgive the small debt his neighbor owed to him after he had been forgiven such an enormous debt. That's sort of what it's like when we have just focused on our debt to God before the ten, and then Jesus reminds us in the prayer to forgive our neighbor in the daily baptismal life. So we might hear the words of repentance in the face of the ten, also hinted at here, almost as if this conditional clause could include that well-known phrase that Luther includes elsewhere in the Catechism, consider your station in life. All right, so uh, we'll, we'll get to this soon when we get to the discussion on confession absolution, but the question there is, well, what sins should we repent of? Consider your station in life. So also, in terms of how we love our neighbor, how we show forgiveness toward our neighbor, consider our station in life. In your station, you sin against God and against man, you trust in God, and you forgive and love your fellow man. And so uh, just as we know our shortcomings, we also depend upon God's grace to protect and defend us from our neighbor's shortcomings so that we can freely forgive our neighbor by trusting in that call to repentance and that forgiveness of sins. In that good order, uh, we can love our neighbor for our neighbor's sake, just as God has shown his love for us, for our benefit, for Christ's sake. Now, some here might get a little bit confused by the phrase, as we forgive. The question sometimes comes up in confirmation classes about whether God forgives us conditionally upon our previous forgiveness of others. And the scriptural answer to that, of course, is, is a resounding no, so that we might better understand the phrase to be, forgive us our trespasses 
as we also are to forgive those who trespass against us. And certain passages, again, well illustrate this reminder. Again, the parable of the unforgiving servant. God had initiated the round of the forgiveness, if you will, the round of forgiveness of sins. And then he grew angry with the servant for not forgiving so little where he had been forgiven so much. And so certainly that Matthew 18 passage shows that God is the one who initiates forgiveness. Uh, Colossians 3 talks about us bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So you can see the relationship there. We ought never think that God is trying to test us, if you will, and holding our forgiveness over our nose like a carrot and a stick routine while he's waiting for us to forgive others. But he is pointing out, Christ is pointing out here, that we have every reason to forgive our neighbor who is penitent, just as God has forgiven us. And we ought live in that relationship of the vertical and the horizontal, as Christ has set up so well in his explanation of the Ten Commandments. So now he resolves that, if you will. He calms that. He gives a free and clear conscience regarding that in this petition of the Lord's Prayer. I think we also have time in this episode, Sean, to perhaps also quickly talk about the idea of saying, well, do we have to forgive everyone, right? Must we forgive everyone always, or may we forgive everyone always? And I think that this is a very helpful time to consider this in saying, when Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Remember that this prayer is given for the Christian. It's not given as a right for the whole world. And so with the Christian, there is an anticipation, there is an expectation that we understand repentance and forgiveness, but that forgiveness is not asked of by the impenitent. It's not sought by the impenitent, and it doesn't calm the conscience of the impenitent, but rather the promise that we can pray, forgive us our trespasses, is a promise given to the baptized who are penitent. In the same way, then, when we talk about forgiving others, I think there's been a problem in some of the teaching in our society where, uh, you know, you get these catchy phrases like, forgive everyone always, and you see it happen in the courtroom where, uh, you know, a family of a slain victim comes in and says to the stone, cold, impenitent, you know, murderer, we forgive you. Uh, I think we have to be careful with that. When we forgive each other, we are declaring to each other that God forgives. And God's forgiveness, though it is free to the Christian, free to the penitent, that doesn't mean that it becomes almost this antinomian uh, euphoria of just throwing forgiveness around all the time. He calls us to repentance. And where there is no repentance, then there is no forgiveness. We have to keep in mind that the office of the keys has both the loosing feature, free forgiveness, and the binding feature. And that binding feature is that sin is to be retained. And so this petition, as it teaches us to forgive our neighbor, is a reminder that our neighbor is to be forgiven as we ourselves have been forgiven. And we've been forgiven because in our penitence, we come before the Holy God. The Holy God is gracious to us. And in the same way, when we forgive our neighbor, we are teaching our neighbor, we are confessing to our neighbor, we are giving our neighbor that clear conscience that the Holy God treats them the same way he treats us. And that is through that good order of repentance and forgiveness. So I'd be very careful 
with the idea of following some of these American evangelical slogans that just says basically throw forgiveness of sins around in sort of a you know wild disarray. That doesn't mean that we should guard it closely as if God is thrifty with it, but he is a God of good order. And it would almost be an incorrect promise for us to say to an impenitent neighbor, Christ forgives you. Well, that's not true. And therefore, if Christ doesn't forgive our impenitent neighbor, are we to forgive our impenitent neighbor? We certainly aren't to hold a grudge. We aren't to try and bring our own vengeance against the impenitent. The scriptures say, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. So God will have his vengeance, and it's not for us to take out our anger, our wrath, our vengeance upon the impenitent. We are to wait for the Lord's timing. But the Lord is the one who gets to declare the forgiveness of sins in accord with his holy and gracious will. And therefore, he first calls to repent, and then he graciously and freely forgives the penitent. In the same way, then, the Christian ought be careful how he practices the secondary portion or secondary clause of this line, that we do make sure to practice the call to repentance in addition to the assurance and the comfort and the clear conscience of the forgiveness of sins. We're not teaching each other well if we simply run to saying, don't worry about it, you're forgiven. Well, if the person was never penitent in the first place, we're actually just hardening that individual's heart toward the call to repentance because he says, why, why would I need to repent? My neighbor's forgiving me and he doesn't even care if I'm repentant or not. And so I'll just keep sinning against him because he's just going to keep forgiving me. And so we were almost treated, you know, like a little bit of a dope for thinking that by that impenitent one. They say, well, I'll just take advantage of the individual then rather than saying, no, God is a holy God and there's a good order here. And that order includes repentance. And so as Jesus comes calling us to repentance, as certainly before him, John the Baptist came calling us to repentance. He came calling us to repentance for a specific reason. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The day of grace is at hand. This is a joyous thing. And therefore, the call to repentance is not a hoop to jump through, as if we should be sheepish about it and sort of be apologetic about calling our neighbor to repentance. We would want them and should want them to call us to repentance, that we might be repentant and that we might rejoice then in the declaration that indeed God is freely forgiving of you. In the same way, then, what good is the forgiveness of sins? If the person doesn't know his need for the forgiveness of sins, what good is it to say to that stone-cold, impenitent killer, I just want you to know I forgive you? Well, what does that actually do in terms of teaching that stone-cold, impenitent killer whether or not he should go out and kill again? Uh, so it's an interesting discussion. We certainly don't want to sound as if God tries to be thrifty with forgiveness, but he is a God of good order. And we've got to defend that because it is a beautiful holiness by which he works this good order of repentance and forgiveness. Yeah, if I may jump in there, I think, you know, we would certainly praise the attitude where we are ready to forgive, that we would always make it known that forgiveness is possible or available or whatever kind of phrasing you want to use there. But I think, you know, if we could back up to just for a second, I think this relates into what you brought in with the unforgiving servant that Jesus talks about there is that oftentimes what we have is that we're not ready for forgiveness. We don't live in that forgiveness. We're not disposed towards it, if you will. 
And so I, I want to bring this in that you've talked about with the third petition, how we tend to pause in there and you encouraged us to, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That we not stop in there. I used to have a pastor growing up who would talk about that here with the fifth petition, that we not pause and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? That we would just keep going there because, again, this talks about how we live in that forgiveness in the horizontal with the vertical. And that when I struggle to forgive, when I say that it's not possible at all for those who are penitent, as we see with the unforgiving servant, that's the real problem is that the other servant begs for forgiveness as well. And that first servant doesn't extend it to him. He's not prepared. He's not disposed towards that. And it's because he forgets what debt he has been forgiven, what he has had wiped away. And so I think if we could talk just a little bit more about that, because I think that tends to be a struggle for our folks as well. And I think you talked really well about how it's a right distinction of law and gospel, ultimately, that we not extend forgiveness where there is impenitence that would be applying gospel where they're not crushed by the law yet. But talk a little bit more about this then too, that position of forgiveness when there is penitence and that we would be prepared to extend and live in that forgiveness. Absolutely right. That on the one hand, we've got sort of an antinomian, you know, the, the, much of the American evangelical teaching out there is very antinomian in saying, just forgive always to the point that you're worried about hardened hearts being declared forgiven. But you're absolutely right that in the daily Christian life, and remember, this prayer is a prayer for the daily Christian life, we tend, as fellow sinners, we tend to be stingy in wanting to forgive our neighbor. And as those who are stingy with it, we almost put qualifications ahead of it and say, no, until you do this, until you prove that, I'm not going to forgive you. And Jesus is teaching us here, just as he taught Peter, right? Peter said, well, how many times should I forgive my brother? And he, was, he thought he was being so generous with seven times. And Jesus said, no, every time your brother repents, you forgive him. And this is great comfort to us as fellow sinners, one to another, then, that we can look at each other and we can be eager and ready to forgive because, again, the anticipated and the expected context here is that we are dealing with a fellow Christian, a fellow penitent who has been taught and raised up in and understands God's holy law and his precious gospel. And therefore, we can eagerly point him to that and say, yes, your hope is not in vain. Because if I'm stingy with my forgiveness, not only does it teach the individual that maybe I'm stingy with forgiveness, it teaches the individual that maybe God is stingy with forgiveness. Now, this, again, is where the American evangelical mindset sort of goes overboard, is they don't want the person to think that God is stingy with forgiveness, and so they almost jump the gun a little bit. But we have to be very careful to point out that God is not, is not stingy with forgiveness. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall, shall not perish but have everlasting life. God is free flowing with forgiveness for Christ's sake. And therefore, the Christian ought always be eager and ready to share that in the good order of law and gospel, in that right distinction of law and gospel. He ought always be eager to share that with the fellow penitent. I make a point sometimes in my Bible studies to point out how we ought read differently the word neighbor versus the word brother, right? In the scriptures, the word brother assumes or sort of implies a fellow Christian. 
versus a neighbor is just any neighbor, Christian or non-Christian around us, who is my neighbor. And so, you know, when, we're de- when Jesus is teaching us to pray this petition, this petition, again, is built on that first petition of our Father. And our Father, that comforting phrase is shared not just by me and Jesus, but it's also shared, with, uh, shared by my brother and my sister in Christ and me and Jesus. And therefore, I can be eager to forgive them. So we hinted before that this Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments plus the Creed, right? The Ten Commandments plus Creed equals Lord's Prayer. All of this is for daily life. And so it's fitting that the central petition of this prayer for daily life echoes that phrase that is so much the primary outcome of the divine service. Faith in you and fervent love for one another. And notice that's the Christian assembly gathered around the altar of God, praying that, yes, this word and sacrament that you have given us and in which you have given us the free forgiveness of sins, this now strengthens us just as you have promised in the Lord's Prayer. It strengthens us with that clear conscience that vertically we can have faith in you because of free forgiveness, and we can look around at each other and live with fervent love toward one another and be eager to share Christ's forgiveness with one another in that good law and gospel distinction of repentance and forgiveness. And so as that is the outcome of the divine service, we ought to expect to see it highlighted in and for the benefit of daily life. And lo and behold, here it is in the prayer that is meant for daily life. And that petition then captures the essence of the baptismal life. We see our sins in the face of the 10, and so we pray for forgiveness, and we acknowledge the horizontal relationship in which we also forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ and all who call on the name of the Lord in repentance. And then the final petitions of the Lord's prayers, we'll study them next week. Now they all follow and flow from this baptismal reality of dwelling together and living in this faith in God and fervent love for one another. That is well said by our catechist for this series, Pastor Mark Bestel. Thank you for your catechesis on the fifth petition. And as you said, we will pick up then next week the final petitions of the Lord's Prayer here, the sixth and seventh petitions. And we'll also get into the conclusion next week. So please join us again for that, for our series, The Catechized Life. Thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. 